What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Ben and Kelly. Welcome to another edition of Cyberlaw and Business Report. We're broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center here in downtown Santa Monica. And got another great show for you today, courtesy of the Miami Book Fair. We have with us author Amy Hamill, and she is the author of Detroit Hustle, a memoir of love, life, and home. And it's a tale of urban renovation, house in the home, rediscovery, you name it, in all set in the West Village neighborhood of Detroit. Amy, are you with us? I am. Thank you so much for having me. And it's interesting. Um, last year, we had on our show another tale of Detroit. We had Once in a Great City, a Detroit story by David Moranis. And I don't know if you've, you've read that at all or had a chance to hear him interview at all. I but have. Absolutely. We've been able paths on book tour a fair amount there's a couple of detroit books out right now which is exciting that's great and i wonder if you made it to his favorite bookstore um politics and prose in dc um he, he was very fond of that one and i, I used to I've not it. made it to politics and prose um i was fortunate enough to make it to the tattered cover in denver which was really special because that was my bookstore growing up and i always dreamed of someday maybe be the author actually getting to read there and then it came true which was a really special evening that is so cool um yeah i guess we all have that dream of um being in our whether it's our hometown arena or our hometown bookstore um but so your story is an interesting story you you come from um you finish a fellowship at michigan state and um 
the option of moving back to Brooklyn, but cost prohibitive. Um, and so you decide to do something else. Tell us how you reached that decision. You know, it was not an easy decision. We had been living in the Red Hook neighborhood of Brooklyn and really loved our community and our home. But Hurricane Sandy had hit and devastated the neighborhood, and so it felt hard to go back both financially and logistically. At the same time, my parents were divorcing back home in Colorado, so it felt like it was falling apart. In the meantime, my husband and I had only been married nine months, so I think, you know, in retrospect, we were also thinking about not just where to move, but where we wanted to build a life. And initially, he was gung-ho Detroit, and I was a little uncertain um, but eventually sort of the city, I say it started its slow roll into my heart and won me over. And it was the people more than the actual physical place. They were so warm and so welcoming and just, you could feel the sense of community. And I thought this could be a place where I want to be long-term. And so you find a property for $35,000 and you, you know, uh, some people listening to this call will have cars worth more than that. Um, True. And it, it seems, un, I mean, growing up as a kid, I, I grew up in Rhode Island. I know people who bought properties for that. And, you know, with, and, but this seems so unheard of in today's world. Um, how, how did you find the property? So, I mean, one of the things, of course, I can't lie, that drew us to Detroit is the idea of cheap real estate, right? And so there right. is a sort of zeitgeist moment where people are saying, well, the coastal cities are too expensive. Patty Smith is saying, you know, D New York is done. Go someplace like Detroit where you can be more creative and you can sort of save some money and live just a more interesting life. And so that sort of plan background when we get there and we're looking for something cheap and the story of the thousand dollar house the five thousand dollar house so we go looking and what we find is that even in detroit there's a reason why a house is five thousand dollars or thirty five thousand dollars and it's because <laughs> it has no plumbing it has no electricity it's been vacant for a decade it's falling in it's collapsing these you can buy it cheap but you're not going to get to move in and so we actually found this particular way, somebody knew somebody who knew somebody, and they gave me, you know, a contact, and the, the sellers actually lived just 15 minutes outside of my hometown in Colorado. So it was just very small wow, world situation. Yeah. And we, I called her, we, you know, she was living in Colorado. She said, well, there's a lockbox on the door, go check it out. So my husband and I did, and from the first moment we saw it, we knew he says he knew the house was the right one and the same I was the right one. So let's, I don't know let's, what that says about me. <laughs> so you, you, you lived in Brooklyn. How, how many square feet did you have in Brooklyn? Uh, we had a fairly large place by Brooklyn standards. So we had 800 square feet, but it was a two-bedroom and we had a roof deck. Okay. And so you're moving to a 3,000-square-foot house. Yes. In, so you know, that's a, a pretty a nice expansion. Um, and in somewhat of a historic neighborhood, is it not? It is in a historic neighborhood. It's on the National Register of Historic Places. Um, the West Village of Detroit was placed on it in 1980. Uh, one of the original owners of my house was the woman who got that designation made. So it's it's pretty special to us to be in a historic district. And and so was um, is your house itself a historic place or no? The house itself is not a historic, you know, is not as 
historical, but Arthur Herzog, who wrote God Bless the Child with Billie Holiday, once owned our house with Nona Herzog, who got the neighborhood put on the National Register. So let me ask you, in, you know, right now I'm, I'm in Santa Monica, you know, which always gets confused for Detroit. But um, the in L.A., you know, properties can be gain value because, you know, that was Warren Beatty's house or that was so-and-so's house. Does, have, would that contribute to the value of your property? So it doesn't hear as much. Um, you know, a sad story here in Detroit is that Rosa Parks' home that she lived in here uh, was actually scheduled for demolition and an artist took the facade back to Germany to rebuild it. So on the one hand, there's a lot of love for historic properties and yet there's been so much decline and decay here and just trying to keep things together that people forget about which houses are and don't remember the the stories in them. So our neighbors all knew Arthur and Nona and were able to tell us that story, but it didn't affect our property, the value of our property at all. So um, when you see this wonderful property, the, the property was wonderful, but what was the condition of the house? So the housing, it had no electrical, it had no heating, south wall was collapsing, uh, the back porch was peeling off and water was running through it, most of it was covered in mold, the ceilings were collapsing, so it was, you know, it was a as much of a rehab project as one can get. I, I say we rebuilt a house inside three good walls. And, you know, let's step back, you are now, you, you're... Um... You're a business reporter, a financial reporter with Cranes. and I, I was. I covered the bankruptcy for Cranes. I've since left and I'm now a faculty member at Michigan State and write small business stories for the New York Times. So, But at the time you, you're doing this, you're, you're a business reporter. Um, what was the business reporter of you saying as you ventured down this path? So the business reporter in me says, that especially because I've covered personal finance and I'm particularly risk tolerant. Everybody needs to understand what their risk tolerance is. And that for my husband and I who are moving to Detroit and intending to make this a long-term home, not we're not house flippers, this isn't HDTV, right. we're looking at this and saying we can get a, a, a home here, the kind of home we could never afford in almost any other American city. We can rehab it and it's gonna cost us a lot, but this is still less than our carrying costs back in Brooklyn uh, for a home and a community and a place we build our lives in. So the business reporter and me could look at that sort of cost-benefit analysis and say this comes out in our favor. Put in, so that, is that 300000 uh, Yeah, in November a couple of years ago we had, when it was appraised, we, it was 300000 Hopefully it's worth more today. Okay, and so we, so you... You've put about that much in already, though. Four hundred. Uh, we put about four hundred and fifty dollars into the house. Wow, and um, but you have it free and clear. You have no debt. No, we had to get. So the thing about Detroit is that if you're, they don't issue mortgages or loans to do this kind of work because the houses are valued so low. So when we were trying to get a mortgage or a construction loan, the bank said, we don't even know how to do that because you bought the house for 35000 It doesn't even have windows. It's not worth anything. So we had to come up with all of that in cash, credit card debt, loans, 
So at the end, when we got the $300,000 valuation, was willing to say, all right, we can write you a mortgage now to pay off all of that debt you had to take out, um, you know, to be able to do this in the first place. So we do have a mortgage on it now. Incredible. Um, now, I recall in Baltimore's now Harbor, there was a, you know, when before the the renovation really took off, I mean, if you could buy houses for, I think, something, 100 on the, you know, as long as you agreed to fix them up. And um, so you just, this was just the market. There was no city program saying, here, here are fine properties for you. Um, just come in, um, renovators, and um, save our city. You just, this was just uh, synchronicity. You found this by happenstance. We did just find it by happenstance. About a year later, the city did create an auction program where auctioning off homes to people who want to come in and renovate them. The challenge is that people are buying them and then struggling just like we did to find the financing to be able to do the renovation. So the pro- program is struggling because the financials of this market are so unique. And the financials, meaning the, the financials of this, the renovations that were involved because some of the properties have been abandoned for so long. Is that it? or Right, because you can't properties? or a construction loan to do the renovations. Interesting. Because, so, again, mortgage on a house that you need 100000 for say, to renovate, but is only going to be worth 70000 when you're done. Exactly. But, so um, you walk in and you purchase a place. Um, at what point... How long did it take before you could even live there? So we moved in. We couldn't continue to afford to rent another place. So when we moved in, you know, there was drywall up, but we still had floors to do. The kitchen was somewhat functioning. We had one bathroom temped in. So we, you know, we lived in construction. How how stressful is that? You know, we did better than I thought my husband and I would do. It was sort of a testament to our that we got through it. There were times when, I always joke, we were looking for tile one afternoon and trying to figure out what tile was going to go in the bathroom. And afterward, we went to our favorite bar, PJ's Logger House, and he was saying he wanted some tile. And I took my wedding rings off my hand. I slammed them down on the bar. And I was like, if you want that kind of tile, we just cannot be married anymore. And thankfully, my husband is very um, understanding. And we both recognized that we were going through a lot of stress. And I and he came and found me and was like, come back, you know, have a drink. We're going to be fine. But there, so there were times when it was, it was comically stressful, but we also got through it. Um, we also had four animals, which trying to have dogs and cats in a construction zone is a sitcom in and of itself. I can imagine. Yeah, I've seen, the, the, I'm looking at some of the pictures and one cat. Um, I, so you have, what, what's the mix that you have? Uh, we had two cats and two dogs. Interesting. And how did they deal with the the renovation? So the cats pretty much just hid in our bedroom. The dogs seemed to think it was great because they had contractors coming in every day wanting to, you know, hang out with them. So for for their lives, instead of being left alone in a house all day while my husband and I are at work, they had friends. So they thought it was the greatest thing ever. And friends who bring... More importantly, yes. So um, you... you you purchase a home. It's a 1914 house, and how did 
Did you were having major decisions in terms of how what style to renovate it in, or it was just really just you know restore it to the way it once was? So we mostly did a restoration. So particularly on the exterior, because it's in a historic district, we're required to do historic restoration back to what it would have been. So that meant, you know, historic windows, they were new, they're double paned and environmental, you know, sorry, not environmentally, but um, eco-efficient. But the inside, there wasn't much left in terms of historic detail. So we saved what was there, kept the floor plan for the most part, and opened up to the kitchen. Because when we got it, the kitchen area was like five tiny rooms. I don't even know where you put a refrigerator. So we did open that up and create master suite of kitchen dining room my husband's piano is right off of it so it's this great entertaining space that that's the thing we're we're most excited about and you know from what i've know of older houses that also means no closets and what how did you handle that so this house had closets you know especially coming from brooklyn which really has no closets this feels like there were closets everywhere one thing the one closet have was there wasn't one at the entryway neither was there a bathroom on the first floor and so our contractors Cal and Christian Garfield were brilliant we you know we're not going to listen to them at the time when they said you need a hall closet and you need a bathroom and we said no 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 it's too expensive we don't have the money and they insisted and it was one of the best choices we made so we've got a hall closet right at the front door and we've got a little powder room that you know really has made life much easier when we entertain yeah, I'm looking at a picture. Actually, for, um, for the listeners, there's a really good profile on the house on DetroitCurb.com, and uh, we'll have it on the show notes. Um, great pictures, and uh, you can see also the work in progress. And so, your friends in Brooklyn, what did, what did they say to you? They did, 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 did could they comprehend what you were doing, or? Were they too uh, absorbed by what was going on with with the the hurricane? I think most of them were absorbed with what was going on with Hurricane Sandy in the aftermath. I mean, for six months, you know, at least some of our friends were struggling to get in and out of their homes, you know, rebuild businesses. It's just, and the devastation is continuing. Like, a lot of people still haven't been able to get everything back up and running years later. So it it was a serious devastation. Those who, you know, did know about it and were able to focus on it, the irony is that several of them, unbeknownst to us, had already moved to Detroit. So our friends Sandy and Andy had moved here, and they opened up the Red Hook Coffee Shop named after our old neighborhood. Perfect, yeah. Um, You know, our friend Reg Flowers managed to buy a house here. Another friend who had a bike shop came to Detroit. So there was this a number of people that we knew from just our neighborhood of Red Hook that had come. So there, there's definitely sort of this sense of, you know, could is Detroit the right place for us to make our home? And people are coming, figuring that out. And um, in making that decision, you know, Detroit, you had spent time obviously in Michigan as, you know, in your fellowship. But what other connection did you have to the city? None. Amazing. We had no. We have no family in Michigan. We have no connection to Detroit. The only about ten years prior, my best friend and I had vacationed in Detroit for a weekend, but that was so that that was connection to the city. And at the same time, so you're not you're not living in Detroit before this point. Um, 
yeah, Detroit is is a national story, um, you know, because of the the abandoned housing and all 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 that goes with it. As a journalist, definitely not. As a journalist, it's something and you want to go and cover it and figure out what's happening and understand it better. So it was it was not daunting to us. The, maybe the story of crime was a little rattling at first because of the way people talk about Detroit being so dangerous, when in reality, just like most cities, you know, there are crimes of opportunity. There, you know, is definitely significant crime, but there's crime all over the place and people manage to live their lives. And so you, you know, you work to make it better. You work to make your neighborhood safer. So I, you know, I just chose not to allow that to taint my sort of my view of things. Um, and we've luckily, you know, not been the victim of crimes. We've had friends who've had stuff stolen, but most of that is typical city kinds of crime. You leave your laptop in your car, your laptop Gee. is going to get stolen. <laughs> like bottom line. And so, you know, for the most part, we, you know, other parts of the city are different, uh, you know, that are, but we live in a, you know, sort of area where most of the crime is property crime and not, not, you know, personal physical crime. So we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to hear more about the Detroit hustle. Um, after these messages, you're listening to the Cyber Law and Business Report only on cranberryradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Is your website hacked? Is your website displaying error messages or loading slowly? Even if there are no signs of malicious activity, your site may still be compromised. Websites, like cars, require regular maintenance to perform at their best and not leave you stranded. At Fjorge, our website maintenance experts can help you assess which one of our maintenance plans will best support your needs. Visit FjorgeDigital.com or call 612-877-3840 and get the support and protection your website and business deserve. That's F-J-O-R-G-E-Digital.com. Literature is taking over Miami streets. Between November 13th and the 20th, downtown Miami will transform into a full-week celebration of the literary arts. More than 500-plus authors are coming to share their new work at the 2016 Miami Book Fair. The Porch is open every evening, complete with a full schedule of live music and performances, a farmer's market and cafe, food trucks, craft beer, and more. For more information on the 33rd Miami Book Fair, November 13th to the 20th at Miami-Dade College's Wolfson Campus in downtown Miami, call 305-237-3258 or visit MiamiBookFair.com. Follow Miami Book Fair on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Miami Book Fair. Pick out some new favorite podcasts now at Cranberry.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Here is Bennett Kelly. And we're back. So come up with the, the title, Detroit Hustle. Why, why that? So there's actually a, a kind of a saying here, a slogan that's Detroit Hustle's Harder. So part of it was a play on that, but part of it was a play on... As a kid, my father always told me, 
kid, you always got to hustle, hustle harder than anyone else. So that's sort of a, a double, double meaning for me. Now, um, it's funny. We, we talked earlier, you know, about the the other book on Detroit, and at the time, one of the things that covered, and he's talking about Detroit in 1964, it was the hope that Detroit would get the Olympic Games in 68. And there's a video, actually, you can see it on YouTube. It's there, Detroit's video f- to pitch for the, the Games in 68. And I remember watching starts with Detroit the city of the future what what is the the belief of Detroit's future by people in your neighborhood I would say that we believe that Detroit has a has a future I mean that is controversial from even five or seven years ago when most of the national media had written off Detroit people think that it's dead but Detroit has a future it's you know an amazing city that is figuring out to address issues of race and class and poverty. You know, we're dealing with so many things on so many levels that other cities are just starting to realize that they're going to have to deal with our bankruptcy, for example. Part of that was about pension costs, long-term legacy costs that so many other cities are going to have to start figuring out right now that Detroit sort of sees coming out of bankruptcy as a way to start rebuilding its future and figuring out, okay, we've been known for autos. What are we known for in the future? And part of that is we're going to be known again for design. Detroit is the design capital of America. This is where Eames and Knoll met each other. Mid-century modern was born in the suburbs of Detroit. We've got so much in terms of connected cars and mobility that we know about because of our supply chain expertise that when we talk to Google and, you know, a lot of Tesla and the tech companies in Silicon Valley, they're saying we've got to partner with the because they still know how to make things. And so I think what we make, how we make it is changing, but Detroit's future is going to continue to be this sort of, I believe, working class, we know how to make things, you know, great middle, you know, building up the middle class, sort of Detroit's history is one of opulence and wealth. That's coming back, but nobody wants that to come back and not be addressing our 40% poverty. Nobody wants that to come back without addressing challenges in the schools. Right. So Detroit has to show America how we do it right. And, and you, your neighbors, who, who are your neighbors largely – I guess, urban pioneers, or have they been there for throughout? So they've mostly been here throughout. So our closest neighbors, you know, Jim and Mary Boyle across the street have been here since the 90s. Then around the corner, we have neighbors who've been here since the 60s, 70s, 80s, very long time, stable neighborhood. Uh, you know, some new residents like my husband and I, our neighbors, you know, just to the east of us, there are more people moving in. There had been some vacant houses. Those are being bought and renovated. So the neighborhood is changing. But the most of it, it's still a very mixed neighborhood, both in terms of race and class. It's still predominantly African-American and longtime residents. So that is one of the things that drew us to this particular neighborhood was that diversity and, and demographic. And and was the stability a factor? Mm-hmm. Stability was definitely a factor. We liked that our neighbors had been around, you know, f- for decades and, and sort of were wonderful stewards of Detroit and were wonderful tour guides for us about Detroit, both culturally and sort of, you know, where to go to eat or what to go and see. 
And you mentioned Patty Smith at the top of the show. Where did, did she live in that same neighborhood or another part of the? She actually lived in the suburb of St. Clair Shores. Okay, I, that's what I thought. I thought she was in the suburbs. Um, I remember reading a profile of her as this kind of reclusive suburban mom, and um, which is kind of you know, given that she was such an iconic um, rocker. Now, um, in approaching the renovation, how did you? Who did you look to for guidance or inspiration? How, you know, how did you decide what what it and how to do it? We just did. I mean, it was basically, we had amazing contractors who were our partners. Um, That was sort of the blessing in all of this. We couldn't have done this work ourselves. If it was just sort of cosmetic, we would have figured out how to DIY it. But when we're trying to have to put every system back in, there wasn't even a, a boiler. There was no furnace. You know, we needed experts. And our contractors were amazing and became our partners in everything. But in design or what we did, there wasn't anything that we looked to or any professional. It was pretty much just Carl and I figuring out what we both liked and developing it ourselves. And what was the, the kind of, when, when things push came to shove, what was the design? Well, how did you decide things? Was it the dishes felt right or we, let's try to be as true to the original design or? I mean, the thing with this house, there was nothing left in it. So there's no original design to be true to when basically <coughs> everything collapsed not like, you know, okay. you're trying to put it back. It, you know, there wasn't much there. So for us, you know, we the little bit of historic trim that was still there, we took that and took it to public lumber, a, uh, you know, and had new trim milled that was historically ac- accurate. So we did that. Um, we tried to keep the floor plan as close to the original as it was. We didn't, you know, we were repairing walls, fixing it. We didn't, you know, put in concrete countertop to make it look just like the kitchen would have because there was no kitchen when we bought it. So the way we made decisions was if one of us liked it and the other didn't, then we didn't do it. We knew that if it was always right when we both loved something. So we waited to find the thing we both loved. And how have your neighbors responded to what the work you've done? They've, I mean, as far as I know, they've been very pleased. We just had a 200-person pig roast in the backyard Saturday night, which was mostly all neighbors. <laughs> so we always have people coming over and, you know, they're pleased to not have this eyesore to maintain anymore. Our neighbors had had to mow the grass, try to keep it boarded up. They're just so pleased to have this house, you know, inhabited and have life in it again. Now, the, you're, you're teaching at Michigan when in very cute, lovely Ann Arbor. Does that ever go green? No, 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 go green. This is Michigan Michigan State. State. I'm sorry. Sorry. (laughs) I know the war between the two. It's so funny. No, I I know. I'm sorry. That is a huge mistake. My my, my bad. Um, So, how long did you drive to Lansing? Ninety minutes each way. How many days a week do you do that? Three or four. Wow. Um, Yeah, that is that is a huge divide. And which has um, seemed to have favored you recently, Um, but this year. But yeah, we'll um, see. I think the the uh, Michigan Michigan State game is coming up. Although I'm not much of a sports person, so this whole rivalry thing is just amusing to me. But it's hard. It's hard not to note. Hard not to notice it. I mean, you know, here in LA, which isn't necessarily a big college football town, but it is the week when it's UCLA versus USC. 
and um, you know you just see it all around. Um, in Detroit's revival, what what do you think are going to be what what are the milestones to look for when we can say, hey, you know what? I think Detroit is coming back. What what should, what what do you think we'll see? Uh, the milestones we're looking at is population increase. So we both want new people coming in and also stabilizing those who are here so they're not losing their homes to tax foreclosure, which is a, a major concern here in Detroit. I think we're looking at how are we solving the schools is a public education and how are we doing at creating new jobs. So if we can create new jobs and good jobs across a variety of industries, uh, you know, that some that are, you know, new startup tech companies, some that are manufacturing, if we can create a variety of jobs, then I think that is a good harbinger. There's a huge focus on entrepreneurship right now, and not just sort of Silicon Valley tech bro dude stuff, but actually small business development says, all right, if we can, we are a city that has to rebuild, not just you know, at the high end of getting high tech, high growth jobs to come. But if we if we have somebody wanting to bring 300 jobs like that to Detroit, we have to have services for them in the city. So it creates a great opportunity for small businesses to reopen on the commercial districts that have been long, you know, long time shuttered and create those spaces and restaurants and services that people want to use, but also make sure you know, the thing we're very aware of here is this is that African-Americans are at the forefront and have business opportunity, have success opportunity, that it's not just, you know, success for new people like my husband and, and myself. This has to be a whole picture success for Detroit to be um, on a good path. And, and, and how are how is Detroit on that path? In I mean, terms let's, let's, of, let's start with one of the first criteria, population. So is pop, is the population still um, negative flow or are people is it starting to replenish? So we won't really know until the 2020 census to have a real measure. There will be some smaller measures like uh, energy, the energy company, it sort of measures new hookups and things. Some of those things are starting to show positive versus negative. So we're starting to see some, some signs that, that we are heading that direction. Uh, Starting to see jobs, we are seeing numbers like that. We've had an institute for advanced manufacturing come, and are creating a significant number of jobs. Lear just re, just opened a new design headquarters in Detroit, which is going to create a number of jobs and some spinoff jobs. So we're starting to see. Uh, I think the design industry itself has created 300 new jobs just in sort of downtown Detroit over the last five years. So we're starting to see some significant movement. It is quite significant. And the other thing, though, is that Detroit, one thing Detroit has to offer is is in some ways one of its weaknesses, but it's also a strength, is you have a lot of vacant spots. And you have, you know, it, it, for a business that wants to start up, I imagine, compared to other places in the Midwest, it, it's got to be one of the cheapest places to launch. So it is. I mean, that that is the opportunity that the cost 
of starting is lower, but just like my house, I always remind people it's never the cost of acquisition, it's always the cost of improvement. So you can get space cheap, but the space requires so much work that don't ever forget that you're going to have to have those kinds of costs included. But I feel like there's a real spirit of get it done, figure it out here, and that's one of Detroit's real positives is this idea that, you know, this is the land that built the middle this is the land of people who hustle, who know how to work, and people are ready and willing to do that and are excited for new opportunities. But so the the flip side, and you, you made a good point about it's, it's, it's the other cost. And one of the other costs is is um, people right, have the talent pool that um, startups want. So because, you know, I think that's something we're working on developing. We're saying we've got a poll from Ann Arbor, so we've got a pool of talent there, but we're trying to figure out how to grow talent in the city. Some of that is, you know, coding boot camps. We've got Grand Circus, which is offering a lot of, of coding, like I said, coding boot camps. But we've also got companies like Detroit Labs, which is an app maker. They did the app for Domino's. They actually were having a hard time finding employees, so they just created their own internal internship program where they're bringing people in, training them, and they can either go to work at Detroit Labs or elsewhere. So Detroit is creative about how it's solving those kinds of problems. When it comes to construction, one of our challenges is that we've got a ton of new big projects on the horizon, but do we have the number of workers who are trained and ready to work? No. So that is something that the city and the county and the state are all working toward to say, okay, how do we make sure that people are job ready when these positions come? And and the people like you who take a flyer on the city and decide, okay, let's 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 see if this works. Um, and I know there's no statistics on this, but anecdotally, do you have a sense of whether those people are staying? I don't have, I mean, I have a sense of sort of in my community that yes, people are staying, people are having children, they're committing to staying in the city, despite everybody saying, oh, you'll leave when you're ha- when you have kids, they're figuring out ways to put their children in Detroit public schools or in, in charter or, or private schools, but they are staying, there's a real commitment to this city. The biggest challenge we're facing right now in terms of that is young couples who have a condo downtown but then have a family and want to buy a house. There's such there's such small inventory of houses that are move-in ready that they're winding up having to go to the suburbs and to buy a house, even though they desperately want to stay in Detroit. So the real estate market, uh, you know, is still very complicated and and decaying. So we're we're solving those solving those problems. Now, it, it, years ago, I I remember reading a Wall Street Journal article about headhunters saying the the second most difficult um, assignment for them is getting someone to move from New York to Chicago that you know, that was just it was it was really hard but that the most difficult assignment was to get them to move back to New York and you know, I guess the kind of the Midwestern charm, and you know, just what Chicago had to offer, and you know, people liked Chicago over New York once they got exposed to it. And I guess you know, you, you know, Detroit is not Chicago, but it is has the kind of Midwestern ethic that that seems to permeate that region. Uh, is that 
how how important is that going to be to the Detroit's recovery? I mean, certainly, I think that people come to Detroit or Midwestern cities and realize that they, you know that they are amazing cities with great cultural assets. We've got the Detroit Institute of Arts. We've got the Charles H. Wright. We've got access to Cranbrook. We're just a train ride away from Chicago. So we have all of these things, but we also have the ability to have a bonfire in a pig backyard and sort of this great culture of friendliness that I do think warms people and makes them want to stay. I, I think Detroit, I mean, for us, it was the people that made us want to stay. I mean, in areas, the city's still ugly and bombed out and blighted. There's no two ways about that. So you have to want to stay because there's something more, and you see potential, and you see beautiful people working hard who love their city, too. And so being a part of that's really exciting versus, say, for me, a Seattle or a Portland of done and, and resting on its laurels of what it is versus Detroit, which is still forging its future. So if I was visiting for a day in Detroit, what would you take me to see? I would take you to see the Guardian building. Uh, it's a downtown skyscraper with this amazing tile work uh, in this sort of Aztec art deco design that everybody who walks in there just is blown away. It's like the biggest sign of opulence. I would take you to Bell which is our 900-acre park in the middle of the Detroit River and show you, know, show you this sort of beautiful open space. I would take you up to Livernois, which is sort of the old avenue of fashion back in the 60s. This is where the furriers were and all of the Detroit lions hung out and sort of the center of black fashion and culture that is being revived. And I would take you to Cuzzo's Chicken and Waffles. I would take you for cocktails at Craftwork in my neighborhood uh, because great sort of community gathering spot. I would send you to the Detroit Institute of Arts to see um, the Diego Rivera murals. I would send you to the Charles H. Wright Museum to see, you know, the hist- just their great uh, installation on slavery that is so powerful. There's, just, there's so many things that you couldn't actually get them all done in a day. You would need at least a week. So book your tickets for a week. There you go. It sounds very interesting. Um, we're going to take a short break and we'll be wrapping up. And hearing more about a Detroit hustle after these messages, you're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report only on cranberry.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Looking for a white label SEO and social platform for your clients? Think eBrands. Free and unlimited SEO audit reports. eBrands. Premium Facebook apps and welcome page creators. eBrands. Twitter management app, analytics, and mobile site generators. eBrands. Let eBrands manage your search and social media campaigns and give you and your clients access to their white label dashboard, which have great reports that will wow your clients and deliver great ROI and results. Try eBrands for 30 days. Go to eBrandsWithAZ.com or call 1-866-625-5717. That's eBrandsWithAZ for eBrands. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. 
Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. Synergize your search engine education from 101 to rock star level only on Cranberry Radio. Cranberry.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Here is Bennett Kelly. And we're back, and we're talking to Amy Hamrell, um, author of Detroit Hustle, a memoir of love, life, and home. At what point, Amy, did you decide to write the book? So it started out as a blog first, just because when we bought the house, so many friends and family around the country were interested in it. So it was a way to, you know, like a Christmas letter um, to keep everybody informed. And then I started figuring out that there were so many challenges. Like how do you get homeowner's insurance on a house that doesn't have windows? It's actually fairly complicated. So I started writing posts about that thinking there are so many of us going through the same thing. This will be helpful. I did more of that. I got the idea that, well, maybe there was a, a book in this. And so I pitched the book, I wrote a proposal and got an agent and pitched the book as we were actually starting construction on the house. So fairly early on in the ho- in the construction of the house process. And um, what would, they must have been very curious about the, the condition of the house. Well, what was, what was the feedback you got when you started pitching it? Um, about the book? Yeah. So I think that there was it was mixed. So they liked the idea of it, but this was before Detroit had declared bankruptcy. So there was sort of this sense that the Detroit story had been done. Charlie LaDuff's book had come out. Mark Benelli's book had come out recently. So there was, you know, people were kind of cool on Detroit. Uh, Detroit's so interesting because it's a city that's always sort of in the zeitgeist, always in the conversation, but yet sort of, I feel like in media, there's this perception of it always either be, having been done or the story's cold or it's hot right now. It's just, it's sort of all over the place what reaction you get. And it seems that the story I often heard is that Detroit is, is somewhat at war with its governor, um, that you have a governor that has been um, really trying to exercise greater control and to scale back, I guess, um the sector in Detroit is that that an accurate assessment or I would say that the governor is under fire in Michigan right now more for Flint than Detroit so I think that that conversation is more about what's happened with the Flint water crisis right now we're at a period that Detroit has come out of bankruptcy so what the governor was doing or wasn't doing in Detroit in 2010 2011 is sort of very different than where things are now with a mayor who's pretty Um, and, you know, financial review board, but sort of a sense of trying to let Detroit come back post-bankruptcy. So, you know, I don't follow the governor all that closely. When I do, it's more, mostly the story here is about, is about water. Yes. And it's strange that, uh, how, how far away is Flint from Detroit? Uh, About an, about 90 minutes, maybe a little less. And it has its own water. It's strange that it only affects that one region. But um, well, what is because, the current? 
they pulled out of the Detroit water. So they quit using Detroit's water system to build their own and started pulling out of the Flint River and didn't put in the corrosion controls. Oh, that's the, the tragic tragedy right there. Um, so Detroit is um, this is probably a good time of year to visit in the fall. And that is, it's gorgeous. What 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 what's the best part of it? So the best, I mean, the best part, Michigan in the fall is beautiful. I'm from Colorado, and Colorado is great in the fall. But I actually think Michigan might beat it. The the trees changing, it just sort of softens the city. I don't love the city in the summer. Um, you know, it's just, it's a city built for the car. So sometimes it can just feel like sun beating off of blacktop and pavement. But in the, in the fall, all of a sudden the trees are changing. The, the city just sort of softens. Belle Isle is gorgeous. You've got the shimmering, just sort of blue waters meeting the blue skies and Detroit right there at the horizon. It's just, it's when the city is, is it's most gem-like. It shows off the true beauty of the city. And, um, how? What is the next step for your house? I mean, you, 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 do you have any major projects coming up, or we do? So we still need to fit rebuilding the porch. There was a back porch that was termite infested and and falling apart, so we had to take that down, and we need to rebuild it. It's a screen porch, so I'm very excited about that to fight the mosquitoes, and then we need to rebuild our garage. And how do you build? What's what's required to rebuild a garage? Um, right now, it's a three-car garage that looks like a little cottage. It's wood side, you know. It's just all wood, but the unfortunately, the foundation is is buckling and the roof is collapsing. Actually, going to have to get rid of the entire structure and then rebuild it from foundation up. So now that the book is out, um, do you find are people like stopping by or? Do you find you see people kind of noticing your house, or what? What is yeah. and, and what? Is, how have the neighbors reacted? So the neighbors so the have book. been great. They all knew they're in the book. They knew about the book, so the neighbors have been really lovely. But yes, we do find people stopping by random, knocking on the door. So you know, most for the most part, people are very courteous and thoughtful about that. Um, so occasionally, we get media crews on you know doing live stand-ups or you know photos of the house and i always just tell people i'm easy to find on the internet just reach out to me and i'll give you a tour of the house you know just let me know you're coming that's great and so you you, you've you've gone from outsider to local celebrity that's that's a pretty good leap in a few years yes it's you know and it's it's just you know, I don't know if I'm a celebrity, but I, it's always been important to me to be a part of the community and be active. And so, you know, I'm involved in a lot of things. And people have, being a journalist, people have trusted me with their stories and opened up to me. And I've, I feel like I've gotten to know the city very quickly and very deeply because as a journalist, I care so much about the stories of, of people in that city. What would be the hardest thing for New Yorkers to understand about you know, your, your transition from Red Hook to um the west the west side I think if there's anything like me you think that the hard part is going to be leaving new york but the hard part is actually what happens once you arrive how do you go from being a new yorker to a new something else and right. that entire cultural shift and identity shift and that that takes a little bit and looking at the city people talk about you know that it's coming back and sort of gentrification and the hipster areas and anybody from New York who comes goes to the, what's supposedly the hipster areas and is shocked because there's still 
few, you know, small and not particularly developed by New York standards. By Detroit standards, they're, you know, they are, but trying to figure out that sort of just different perspective and understanding it and understanding that this, that the biggest conversation in Detroit right now is about cultural gentrification and that you are not coming as an urban pioneer. You are not coming to a place state slate you are coming to a city that has 700,000 residents who have been living loving and building their lives there so come with some respect and oftentimes people come acting like they're here to save the city and Detroit does not take kindly to that I can imagine the city of that that pride yes that would make a lot of sense I do have one question that has puzzled me for years and and you're not a sports fan so maybe you don't know the answer but it involves the Red Wings and the um, throwing squid on the ice <laughs> um, when you have a hat trick at a, a hockey game. And um, my understanding is it has to be cooked squid. So somehow people are going to hockey games in Detroit with cooked squid um, stuffed in their um, clothing. <laughs> this is I, something I, that, that baffles me, too, and I have not been to a Red Wings game. This is not a... <laughs> This is not a question I can illuminate for you. I have many friends who are deep, passionate Red Wings fans who probably could answer it, but I, I'm a little. Con- I haven't been to a Wings game because I'm concerned about the octopus on it being thrown. I, I, it, it, it's befuddling it just... as somebody from Colorado, whose mascot is an avalanche and snowflakes, is totally befuddling. They, they have. It. I mean. It's it's just the logistics. You're on a date, and oh, oh, gee, my my boyfriend just reached out and grabbed. I mean, <laughs> I it, it I just it's just you know the logistics of it. You know what, what you put it in your your jacket, and then like your jacket smells like squid forever. Or exactly. you know. <laughs> and, and maybe and there how, are maybe containers that are sold here to carry it, and it's and a, maybe you know, I mean think about it. down. And, generation and how, I have no idea, but yes, it does seem complicated. Not find a guy who smells like squid. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's you know anyway, but. Really, I, I actually I grew up in an area um, in transition, and um, you know I saw a lot of people make efforts to you know bring it back. And uh, you know my the my walk to first grade um, was five blocks long, and by the time I was in high school, every house along those five blocks had been abandoned or burned down. And so um, seeing people make the effort to bring you know old houses and communities back to life i i think that that's a great thing so uh, i commend you and congratulate you on your book and you're going to be at the miami book fair um promoting this book on i am i'm so excited i'm going to be on a panel with the author of the memoir riverine and it just looks beautiful as well i can't wait to meet uh angela palm and be on that panel and so you can learn more about when you can Amy at MiamiBookFair.com, and I want to thank them for providing you to us um, our second annual Detroit uh, memoirist. And uh, <laughs> so it's, <laughs> I wonder what next year's will be. But um, it's really been a thrill. I really enjoyed our discussion, and best of luck to you in Miami and in Detroit. And I, I'm assuming it's cozy in the winter in your place now that you've actually do have windows. <laughs> it is. The, the windows 
huge difference. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely chatting with you. Thank you. And best of luck to you. Thank you for listening, everyone. We'll be back next week with another edition of Cyberlaw and Business Report. Be sure to check out our show notes at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. Um, let us know your comments at Cyberlaw Radio on Twitter. And um, this is Ben and Kelly saying, join us next week for another edition of Cyberlaw and Business Report only on cranberry.fm. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of Cranberry News Marketing and Cranberry.fm. Rebroadcasts or retransmission of this content without proper consent is prohibited. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply.